0: All right, you'll see in your bulletin that we're starting a series on Nehemiah, and um since one of the last times that Jared preached, she poked fun of me for always being in the Old Testament. But just so we're all aware, uh, the Old Testament is more than half of your Bible, and um, <laughs> also we try to go uh, Old Testament one year, New Testament the next. Last year we got about halfway through Acts. Uh, this year, since we've chosen shorter books, uh, we're starting our third Old Testament book this year. We did Esther and... Ezra earlier. So, we're starting that here tonight. Um, one of the things that I get asked, um, you know, as a pastor, you get asked lots of strange questions. Um, some are um, really personal. Some are just like, where did, I've never, I've never thought about that. Um, I don't, definitely don't have an answer. And, um, but I would say for you guys, being uh, the fact that most of you were born um, after 1981, that's the year I was born. um, There's a lot of transition that happens during these years, right? I mean, uh, during these years uh, is when uh, those of us who get married usually get married. It's when those of us who have children usually have children. It's a space in which if you go to school after high school, uh, you have to move, and you might not just move once. You might move twice or three times for your education, uh, you're, probably, you're more likely to change jobs in your 20s and 30s than you are in your 40s and 50s. So there's just, I mean, none of those things are true for everyone. But when you add all those up in a very general sense, there's a lot of change that happens. And so there's a question that we ask as Christians, what is God calling me to do? So people come to me and say, what do you think I should do? Should I do this or this? And I always just listen. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, whether you lived in Idaho or Texas I don't know. I don't know much about either of them. But it made me. It always makes me think about my story, and it helps me have some empathy because I think about, man, I've, I, I've had to make some big, these kinds of decisions too. It's just been, uh, I'm in a little bit of a respite on making these kinds of decisions, you know? I mean, Jen and I, I'm pretty sure we're not having any more children. Um, I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of out of that game. I'm not going back to school. There's nothing you could do to make me go back to school. I don't want to move for anything. I don't want to move down the street, let alone to another state or another city. But it does make me think about the last big transition we made, and that was when we planted this church. So that was four and a half years ago. Uh, We planted that church, but uh, that was August of 2015. But really, this whole thing got going way before that. Um, Jen and I—we had moved back to Lexington. We had been, been, been to UK. We'd moved away for graduate school. We came back in the summer of 08. Uh, and I worked for a, a nonprofit uh, Christian mission called Young Life. And I worked for them for five years. And I really loved the work. I mean, I'd never, I never—I never entertained taking another job. I never uh, looked for another job. I, I really liked the work that I was doing. And about four years in, uh, while we, we were members of Tates Creek that whole time, and about four years in, uh, there's a pastor change. Uh, Robert uh, Cunningham was the youth pastor, and he became the senior pastor. And after he was there uh, for a few months, uh, he approached me. We were friends, Jenna and Abby, uh, Robert's wife, were friends. And he approached me and he said, have you ever thought about leaving your life, staff and being a pastor? I'd really like to you, for you to be an assistant pastor here at our, at our church. And I was intrigued, but I wasn't all that convinced and uh, so I, I said, sure, I mean, Robert, I love you and I love our church. So, sure, I'll think about it, but I've never really thought about that before. So, I uh, talked to Jenna about it, talked to my dad about it, uh, talked to a couple older uh, people at the church that I had a lot of respect in who, who knew what I did with Young Life and respected that too. So, I thought they'd be somewhat unbiased. And I went to one of them and I said, uh, "I explain this whole thing out. And then uh, I was expecting him to say, Young Life or Tate's Creek? I just wanted an answer. And he, instead of giving me an answer, he asked me a daggum question. He said, Marsh, what do you want to do in 10 years? And I was like, Dave, that's what I get to ask college students. That's not what you get to ask me. And he said, all right, I, great. But here's what I'm forcing you to do. I'm forcing you to go back, talk to Jenna, and pray and really think about it. And here's a couple of other things. I don't, I, when you come back and tell me what you want to do in 10 years, I'm not going to hold you accountable to it. And I'm not going to think you're arrogant no matter what you tell me. He said, if you come back and tell me you want to be President of the United States, that's great. And so that really lifted the lid. I mean really got my imagination stirred. And so I I went back and Jen and I talked about it. We prayed about it and uh, went back and told him. And I said, hey, I think what I want to do in ten years, I think, I mean this is crazy. I mean there's a million people who do this better than me. But I I mean what sounds like the way I'm wired and... um, what what the need is in the city? I really want to plant a church downtown Lexington. And he said, "Well, you better get busy uh, about quitting your job and taking that job at Tates Creek." So uh, that's what I did, and uh, I went to Robert and I said, "Hey, I think I'm going to take the job, but you need to know, I'm not going to hold you responsible for this. This isn't your job or Tates Creek's job. But um, I, I'm, the reason I'm taking this job is because I really think God's called me to plant a church in downtown Lexington in ten years." And he said, man, that sounds great. So, I was there for about 18 months and the pastors we were sitting around in a room and we, th- we had the brilliant idea of having a capital campaign. So, we came up with these grand plans and we went to the elders and we said, hey, here's what we, we want to do. We want to expand and secure the nursery and all that empty space. It's just like an unfinished basement that's below the sanctuary at Tate's Creek. Uh, I, we, we want to finish that out. And the elders were like, well, th- these are good ideas. That sounds great, but... Um, you know, if, we, if, if our building better uh, equips us for ministry, uh, that we're going to be even more full than we already are. And we already have two full services. Do you guys want three full services? And we're like, no. And they said, well, you better go back to your drawing board, you know, because us pastors, we're pretty dumb. And um, <laughs> we went back. We came, up, uh, with, uh, we came back, sat in the room. And uh, Robert looks at me. He said, Marsh, hey, you said you want to plant a church. What if, we, what if that was part of the capital campaign and we gave away a bunch of our members to free some space up around here and start a new work downtown? And I said, Robert, I've never taken a church planning class. I've never read a church planning book. I don't know a church planner. I've not finished my ordination exams. And he said, sounds great. <laughs> he said, that, that way you can really lead out as a planner in weakness instead of on your expertise. And literally nine months to the day from the conversation that happened, we had our first service. And that's my story about how God's called me to be a church planning pastor. And many of you hear that story and you say, Marsh, that's really cute. <laughs> I'm really glad you preachers have these romantic stories about being called to ministry, but here I am, and I'm grinding in my nine to five. In fact, it's more like seven thirty to six. I just need to pay the bills. I'm really far into my career. I don't need to hear this kind of thing. Or I just stay home with the kids, and I'm really glad you have this ethereal, spiritual calling going for you, but not me. I understand that. Pastors are notorious for glamorizing their calls to ministry. But the character we're going to look at over the next several weeks is not a priest, is not a pastor. He's a mix between a general contractor and a city planner. In other words, he's like most of you, not called to ministry. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a call from God to bring renewal to the world. And as we talk about this whole thing about being called I want us to make a differentiation between, by, between being called by God to be His child and being called by God to perform the works that He's laid out to us. See, Ephesians 2 does this beautifully. The, the first nine verses of Ephesians 2 to call, to, talks about us being called from death to life, about our hearts being regenerated, that we might love God, that we might be His son, His daughter. But then verse 10 there is a turn of the corner. In verse 10 of of chapter 2 of Ephesians says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. All right, each of us reads that verse. And how do we know the good works are laid out for us? Well, I think it's a great question. And it's one that our text is going to shed light on today. Uh, So, let's read it together. I know this is a bit long. I'll give a little bit of commentary as we as we get through here. So, uh, verse one, chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel. So you can tell I, the narrator here, is Nehemiah. It's going to be the case for the first seven chapters. That I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa is, is the capital of the Persian Empire. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So we're in um, we're in Susa at this moment. Somebody has come uh, east to Susa from Jerusalem. His name's Hanani, one of the brothers. And I asked them according concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and according, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, remember this is Nehemiah, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of Heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I in my Father's house have sinned. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cut bare to the king. Uh, the man that is mentioned there in 11, that's the emperor, it's Artaxerxes. alright 2-1. 2-1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. He's a pretty attuned king, right? And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why sh- should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves?" lives in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, notice he doesn't have any time to really pray. This is like a breath prayer. This is in his heart prayer. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the king queen sitting beside him, so he's probably a little bit nicer to him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Alright, so we've been in Ezra, we've been in Esther. And this is from roughly the same biblical period, this post exilic period where God's people had disobeyed God's covenant. They had been carted off to Babylon. Babylon is then defeated by Persia. And then the Jews are released, and when they are released Ezra leads the charge back now Ezra is very different from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this cross between a general contractor and a city planner. Well, Ezra is a priest, and what Ezra is most concerned about when he comes back is the worship of God's people. So what does he do? He builds the temple. He's in charge of building the temple and making sure that the worship practices are in line with what's been given to them by Moses. So Ezra carries that out. The problem is, is that God's people. In God's house, the temple, that they're in a fragile state. Because the gates and the walls are destroyed. And Nehemiah hears about this and this is where he comes in. And what we hear, hear, what we hear in this passage is really the four ingredients that are included in every call of God to bring renewal to the world. In other words, how do you know what your good works are? Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created for good works. What are your good works? They're different than mine. How do you know? We'll see four ingredients. The first one is godly character. And when you think of godly character, what do you think of? When you think of what a Christian is supposed to be like, what do you think of? You probably think of someone who's obedient. Someone who does the right thing. Someone who's full of integrity. Someone who's compassionate. Someone who's resolute in their convictions and is committed to the things of God. And none of these are wrong. But the truth is, is that no one's always compassionate when they need to be. The truth is, is that sometimes we waver in our convictions. The truth is, we slip up and prove that we're not really people full of integrity. Then what? Does that mean you don't have godly character? Well, think about Nehemiah. We we don't know what Nehemiah what he was really like before we get to one one. There's no mention of Nehemiah in the whole New Testament. But what we do know about Nehemiah is that he was a person of repentance. You saw that in the first chapter. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, you see that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. He just cried and cried and cried. You ever been there? And then through his tears, in verses 6 and 7, we see that through his tears is his repentance. And there's lots of things worth noting about his repentance, but I think perhaps the most significant one is the pronouns that he uses. You see the pronouns he uses to talk about sin? He uses not the first person singular pronoun, I. He uses the first person plural, we. We. He's confessing his sins and lumping it in with a larger collective. And isn't that hard for us? Isn't that hard for us to do as 21st century individualistic Westerners? See, our view of sin is that we can only confess the sin that we've committed without seeing our complicity in the collective. We don't see ourselves as a part of any other body than just ourselves. Maybe our family. Maybe. That's a big maybe. But do we see ourselves as part of the collective when we talk about the church? Not just our church, but the church at large. Not just our individualistic church, but our denomination. Not just our denomination, but Christians all across America and then all across the world. Do we see ourselves in the collective of being a citizen or being a person who lives in the United States? I think that's really hard for us. Think about it when it comes down to race. For instance, when we talk about race and we think about, I want to get rid of discriminatory patterns that lie within my heart. I really want to love people regardless of their difference from me. And we usually kind of hone in. We're like, Lord, make me aware of these unconscious things in which I live day in and day out. Lord, I, I want to become whole in this area of my life. But do we ever think about that in terms of the collective See, when we think about race in terms of the collective, most of us in here are white American Christians. Therefore, the collective we're a part of when it comes to race has a very ugly history that extends for hundreds of years. So when we think about it, we, sh- we should be okay with saying we're sorry and repenting for race relations when it comes to as white American Christians in the United States, That's coming up with the collective. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here by using the pronoun we and not just I. But notice the pronoun he doesn't use as well. Usually when we talk about sin, I know I'm more likely to talk about your sin than I am with my sin. So not only am I, I I usually, I don't like the first person pronoun at all, (laughs) singular or plural. I like the second person pronoun, don't you? Y'all. You. Finger pointed at you. But what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah, when he talks about sin, wants to talk about himself. He's pointing the finger right here. He's not insisting on being heard. He's not insisting on his position as a white-collar cupbearer. And repentance really is the key to leadership, isn't it? If you want to be a leader, and you want to play hero ball, and you want to save the world and your calling, in your career, with your spouse, as a parent, you need to know that's really arrogant. And the truth is, the world would be a lot better place if you sat this one out. But if you enter your calling in any of those roles, in any kind of leadership beyond the ones I listed... If you enter your calling knowing you're a sinner and you know you're associated with sinful people, then what you'll do is you'll walk in humility. You'll walk in humility before God and with other people. You'll weep over your sin. You'll weep over the sin of others. And it'll be your tears that qualify you for leadership. It's not your moral fortitude. It's not your wisdom. It's not your talent. It'll be your tears that qualify you for the work that God's called you to do. Now many of us we hear about this whole thing of godly character and we know it's true, but there's a block for us. We just can't get over the hump here to think that God really has created us for good works because we're all too aware of some kink in our armor. No one else knows about it but me. So I'm never going to volunteer for anything. I'm never going to have the confidence to really wrestle with God about what He's called me to do, because surely God can't call me. Look at me. You think you're disqualified. It might be a persistent sin pattern that's been around forever. Maybe it's something that happened in high school, something that happened in your college years, in some dark corner. Who knows what it is, but brother and sister, it's the lie of hell that says that your sin disqualifies you. It's just not true. See, repentance is what qualifies you for kingdom work, not being a good person. And Nehemiah knew this. And that's why he prays the prayer that he does in verses 5 to 11. It's the first ingredient. Being called by God is our godly character marked by Repentance. There's another one. The second one is a love for others. You see it in verse 2, you see it there in the intro. Uh, Hanani, his boy comes and he wants to know, hey I want to know what's going on with my people back there. You know I'm over here in Susa uh, here with Artaxerxes all day, but my people I know are back there. They've been, they've been building that temple. It's done. They've been worshiping there. How are they doing? And Hanani says, man things aren't great. Look at the walls. Look at the gates. Foreign attack could come and destroy God's people and God's house at any moment. So you see his concern for them. They've only been gone a few years at this point. And he wants to know how they're doing because his heart is with them. He hears this not great news. And he begins to sense a call. A call to meet the need. And I really like the order of things here. I think it's really important. Usually what we do is that we pick what sounds fun to us vocationally. We mull it over. We think, okay, where's the job market line up with something I'm decent at? What provides financial security? What gives me material luxury? What gives me a good life-work balance? And then I find my call. And then I'll try to integrate love for others into that call. And none of those things are illegitimate. But you can run everything through that filter without ever having to run your calling through being motivated by love for others. For instance, I'm sure there are pastors out here who got into the gig because they wanted to sit around and read and write and preach. They really don't care about people. I'm sure there are medical professionals out there who really got into their gig Because of job security, because of financial prosperity, and not really because they wanted to be God's hands to bring physical redemption to those made in his image. I'm, I'm sure there are those who got into social work because they wanted the reputation of being a person of compassion without really having to enter into the pain of their clients. That must have been really tempting for Nehemiah. If I were him and I would heard about this, and I'm pretty sure Nehemiah was somewhat aware of his skill set, he really, I did think uh, that he could get this work done. And if I were him, I would have been tempted to think, man, when I get this work done, they're going to build a statue of me right inside the wall. A big bronze statue of me with the plans in one hand, the hammer in the other. But that wasn't Nehemiah's heart. He was driven by a love for the people. And I think there were any number of projects, big or small, that he would have volunteered for because he just wanted to love these people. So those are the first two ingredients. Godly character and now a love for others. And the third one's pretty obvious. Verses 5 to 11, it says prayer. It seems so elementary that this would be one of the ingredients for determining your call and then being sustained in it. But our lives show just how unusual it is to find someone who is committed to prayer in the way that Nehemiah is. You get an idea of how long he prayed. If you look at 1-1, and then you look at 2-1, it spans a period of about 100 days from the time he heard the news until he prayed the prayer right before he went in to see King Artaxerxes. 100 days. I can't imagine praying for 100 days in a row. Can you? Not only that, but it seems that his prayer life wasn't just listing out a bunch of requests. I really think his prayer life for a hundred days was more like, Lord, give me a prayer. Show me what to ask for. And then at the hundredth day, he prays a prayer that we see in verses 5 to 11. That means the first hundred days are more filled with contemplative work, communion, silence, meditation. And you know why that's really hard for us, don't you? I think it's because we'd rather work than pray. I think, just think about my job, I'd rather meet with you than pray for you. I'd rather preach to you than pray about preaching. I'd rather make plans than pray through plans. See, it really does take a heart that's thoroughly convinced of its inability to make things happen in order to pray like Nehemiah prays. We really think we can get more done than God can, and that's why we don't pray. So prayer, part of determining God's call, it's in prayer that you begin to see what your motivations are for the thing that you want to do. Without prayer, you don't know. So those are three ingredients, godly, character. A love for others and prayer. There's one more. It's circumstantial confirmation. You see it there in chapter 2, the eight verses that are listed there. And this is one that blows my mind. And Nehemiah is there, he's the cupbearer. Being a cupbearer is a high honor, but it really is just a lead slave position. It's involuntary. It requires someone that the king trusts a lot because what the cupbearer does is that they taste the wine before the king gets it. So if it's poisoned, your cupbearer dies and not the king. And Nehemiah prays at the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 11. He only has one request in that whole prayer. And it's that the king, that the king would have favor on him. If I were Nehemiah, I would have said, uh, all right, I got this calling, uh, so I need you to release me. I know I'm a slave. The only way that I get out of this is if you release me. So, O oh, king, will you release me from my duties as cupbearer? I've been training up this person right behind me, and they're going to take the job. So, Lord, I'm asking you to release me from this job. Or I'd have been, Lord, I, I, I'm going to sneak you out in the middle of the night. Would you, uh, would you equip me to do this work of building the walls and repairing the gates? But he doesn't ask for either of those. He just asked for this somewhat generic and somewhat out of, out of the ordinary request. I just want favor from the king. And then you see that favor in chapter 2, don't you? The king recognizes Nehemiah's sad mood. The king asks him about his sad mood. The king releases Nehemiah from his role as cupbearer. And then the king does something unthinkable. (laughs) He offers to pay for it, to flip the bill. I think this was way more than Nehemiah bargained for. But what this does is that it gives circumstantial confirmation for what God's called him to do. See, God's sovereign over all these details, and he just wanted to assure Nehemiah that his calling was sure. And God will do the same for you. It doesn't mean that the path's going to be super smooth. I mean, God confirmed my call by giving me this opportunity, but it's not been easy. So what it means is that you've got to pay attention to your circumstances. How are you seeing God push the ball forward when you're not? What doors are opening up to confirm what he's laid on your heart? But I've got to give a caution. Sometimes these kinds of things, you know, these four points, uh, they seem like a bit of a formula when it's not really what they're intended to do. It's hard to give a formula for the tough matters of the heart. We need to be practical. That's what I'm trying to do here a little bit. But the, and the Bible is very practical. But we've got to realize that we're dealing with the human heart here. You've got to realize we're living, with, living in a broken world. You've got to realize that we're dealing with Satan. You've got to realize that there's going to be opposition to misconstrue these four ingredients. There will be periods of doubt. You will be uncertain. You will be perceived as a failure by yourself and others. And that's why in this whole endeavor, you need this thing called community. Look at 110. In 110 there, you see that Nehemiah had other people around him praying with him. You're going to need a community too. Because when you're determining your call and community, it just has endless benefits. One is it brings you encouragement when you're discouraged. Another is that when you're in community, it keeps you when you're about ready to ruin your life with all of your ambition. Other people will call you out. They'll begin to highlight your motives for doing what you're doing. Because we're prone to being self-deceived. See, this whole thing of determining your calling, it's a family project. It's not an individual project. So you need a community to determine your call. You're also going to need the gospel. See, at some point, the excitement, the hype, the ambition, it's going to run low. You're going to face resistance. You're going to have the haters. You might fail and then repent, but others will still discredit you. The work will go slow. You'll be discouraged. You'll have a really hard time rallying people to your cause. And then what? What wells are you going to go to when those run dry? Well, in a world where we're defined by what we do, we need a strong voice. We need the strong voice of Jesus to tell us who we are. And so Ephesians 1 serves as this great arsenal of truth. And throughout Ephesians 1, Paul is just listing out blessings. He says, You have every blessing in Christ. You've been chosen by Him. You're loved by Him. You have the forgiveness of sins. You've been sealed by the Spirit. You have redemption. You have adoptions as His sons and daughters. You have an inheritance that's about ready to be dumped on you. These are all blessings that you have in Christ that have nothing to do with your calling to good works. And you need those truths to be more precious to your soul than what you've been called to do as good works for Jesus. And when they are more precious to your soul than what you've been called to do, you'll be able to endure all manner of opposition. So, may God help us to keep our calling to Him as His sons and daughters more precious to our souls than our calling what we do for Him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that many of us, we would um, help us cast our, um, at least in our own conscience, uh, cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, that we might see uh, that you call sinners, not just to repentance, but to be used by you. We pray this in your name. Amen.